Lord, truly, what a taste of heaven that was, Lord, just to enter into your presence, to worship and magnify your name. And Lord, we do adore you. Lord, you are adorable. You're worthy of our worship and our praise and our honor. And Father, I pray as we go to your word right now, Lord, that you would give us a greater glimpse of who you are. Lord, because to know you is to love you. We want to know you better that we can love you more. May you be our teacher tonight. Give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. 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 God bless you guys. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. It's great to have you here. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel 16. If you don't have your Bible, you need to get one. We've got them here. They're free. Help yourself. All right. 1 Samuel 16, continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament. Uh, Do be praying. You know, as the church continues to grow, there's more areas of need where God is uh, opening up opportunities for us to minister to people. We know we want to get outside the four walls of this building and, and reach Santa Cruz County and the world around us. And a lot of things that potentially could God that's opening up for us. Just be continue to pray about the full power radio station. Continue to pray about uh, potential for being on local access television, which is free. Things like that. All those things we want to do simply to get the word of God out to reach people who need to hear His name. Amen. So just keep that stuff in prayer. And you know what? We're all a church body, and we're in this together, doing it all for our Savior. All right. If you're a note taker, I'll go. I'll get to the. Uh, outline in a moment, but the title of the message is A Tale of Two Kings. And as we come to Daniel, or Daniel, as we come to 1 Samuel 16, we come to tonight's text, and we've been looking at that long, we're going to start to look at a very long transition from King Saul to King David. We're going to see in tonight's text that David is going to be anointed king, but he's not going to be crowned for about 25 years. So he'll be anointed king as a young man, and we'll look at that story tonight, but it's going to be a long transition, even though, as we saw over the last several weeks, that the kingdom's already been ripped from Saul, and and it's already been prophesied through Samuel that it'll be given to someone else, someone who God would call, and we'll see that tonight. But but we see uh, just a clear picture between these two kings, one who was a king of the flesh and one who was a king of the spirit. One who was called by men and one who was called by God. One who will be used mightily for the Lord and one who because of his own pride and disobedience and impatience missed out on all that God had for him. And I believe that we can see that this is a real clear example for us that we have one or two paths to follow. As God anointed Saul king, it wasn't his will or his desire, it was his permissive will, but he allowed it. And Saul could have done great things for God if he had simply chosen to obey. And every one of us in the room tonight, we can do great things for God. We can be used mightily for his kingdom if we will simply choose to obey. And we saw last week, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. God's not looking for religion, but a relationship. He wants to use you. He wants to work through you by the power of His Holy Spirit. Guys, we should not be satisfied to be on the cruise ship to heaven. Amen? Our desire ought to be to be on the battleship, you know, being faithful to the calling God's placed upon our lives. You know, Israel had a desire for a king as we saw. They cried out for a king. I won't go into it. We know that they got the king they wanted. We know he was tall. He was good looking. He was charismatic. He started off well. He won his first battle. They even, you know, started to say, hey, God was wrong when Samuel was wrong when he warned us. This guy's really actually good. But they had been warned beforehand. If you cry out for a king, you'll be given a king. But before it's over, you'll wish you didn't have him. 
You'll say, oh man, get rid of this guy. And they said, give us one anyway. We've talked about this, how we so often know that what we're doing is contrary to the will of God, but we choose to do it anyway, really hoping the circumstances won't take place or believing that they won't. Why does anyone reject the cross of Calvary? Because they do not believe that hell is real. If anybody went to hell for 30, well, I shouldn't say that. Probably some people would go and come and rebel anyway. But you know, the sad part is that we don't believe the consequences are real. And sadly, the children of Israel did not, and now they've gotten themselves into a total mess. King Saul, because we saw in chapter 13, 14, and 15, through his impatience, he wouldn't wait because the enemy was mounting up, and he went down and made sacrifice himself, and Samuel showed up and said, you disobeyed God. Then he made a rash oath, if you remember, and condemned his own son to death. Again, selfishly trying to promote himself, more concerned about how he looked before men than being obedient to God. And then last week we saw that he had a clear command from God's word and he chose to disobey it. He was told to kill all the Amalekites, something that we all struggle with when we read those things in scripture. It doesn't seem right that he would tell them to kill them all, but remember, I talked about this, get the tape, that the Amalekites were a type or a picture of the flesh. They had been condemned by God 300 years earlier for sneaking up and picking off the weak and the invalid and the old and the aged as they were marching through the wilderness. And God saw them and said, I will not forget. And he gave them 300 years to repent. And when they didn't, he told Saul to go out and get them. Well, Saul went out and instead of killing them all, he killed only those that were of no value to him. He brought back the king, he brought back all of the the flocks and the herds to keep for himself. Those were riches in those days. And then Samuel shows up and he pretends like he did exactly what God told him to do. When confronted with sin, you can do one of three things. You can make excuses, accuse others, or repent. And what did Saul do? He He made excuses and accused others. Well, I didn't really want to do it, and it was the people. They did it, and they did it so they could make sacrifice to the Lord. And as I said last week, that's like saying I, I cheated on my taxes so I could tithe more. You know, Lord, I, I did it really to bless and honor you. So we get to the end of the chapter, and Saul cuts Agag into small pieces, a picture of that hidden sin, that thing that we hold on to. And after doing that, he lets, he lets Saul know very clearly that you're done. God's hand is no longer on you. And if you'll remember, at that moment, Saul or Samuel went away and mourned for Saul. And I love that picture that here's a guy that knew he was going to rebel, but it still broke his heart when he did. And that's where we're going to pick up tonight as we get to chapter 16. And we start this transition from King Saul, who's had the kingdom ripped from him because he's been disobedient and impatient with God. And we're going to see it being transitioned into the hands of young David. So if you're a note taker tonight, uh, there's five points to the message. A tale of two kings. The first one, we're going to see these contrasts. One of a a king of physical stature and a king of inward character. Number two, a king of shameless self-promotion and one of quiet and humble submission. One king who promoted himself and one who was humble before God. Third, one troubled by a distressing spirit, one filled with the Holy Spirit. Clear contrast in the text. One who with those closest to him knew that he was troubled. One whose life was such a mess that people could be right near him and knew that his life was a disaster. Yet another, the other king, who even from a distance, men could see God's hand upon him. Men from a distance who didn't even know him, who had never met him, had heard tale about the fact that this guy had God's hand upon him. His reputation before men was godly. And then last, one whose rebellion had left him troubled and distressed, 
and one whose praise and worship left others encouraged and refreshed. So we're going to see this king of the flesh and this king of the spirit. These two men, again, who both had been given equal gifting by God, an opportunity by God, but one will choose to obey and one has not. And we're going to see the contrast between them. It may be an example for every one of us. So a tale of two kings. Let's begin in verse 1 of 1 Samuel 16. One king of physical stature and one of inward character. Look at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul? Now as I said last week, the last chapter ended with Samuel mourning over Saul. Even though Saul, he knew he was going to rebel, it hurt him nonetheless. Samuel had anointed him as king. He had seen him walk in victory for a short amount of time. Then he witnessed firsthand him falling away from God. And it broke his heart. And you know who this reminded me of as, as Samuel was weeping over Saul? You know, he didn't go to Israel and say, I told you guys. I told you that if you anointed a king, it was bad. Because remember, God was their king. And they were choosing Saul over God. And he could have said, told you, told you, should have listened to me. I told you, I'm a prophet, you're not, you're idiots, you should have listened to what I said. He didn't do that. Instead, he wept. You know who that reminds me of? It reminds me of our Savior. Because you know what? Our Savior knows that men are going to reject Him. He knows that men are going to rebel against Him. And it still breaks His heart when they do. His desire is that none should perish, no, not one. And so we see that Samuel's heart is is a godly thing. It's a Christ-like thing. But at the same time, while I do not believe that he is blaming Samuel for mourning, he is telling him the time for mourning is up. It says in Ecclesiastes, Solomon says this by the Holy Spirit, There's a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to tear down, a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. That's Ecclesiastes 3 verses 3 and 4. The time for mourning for Saul was over. Guys, we all need to be careful that we don't fall into the trap. We are rendered ineffective for the kingdom of God because we are in a place of constant mourning. I know people that something happened 12 years ago, and I'll, and I, I, please, I do not want to downplay how devastating things like losing a child could be. Can't even imagine, to be honest with you. Things that can be so devastating. But we need to come to a place where we are not rendered ineffective by our mourning because you know what? Whatever God has allowed to come into our life, He's also equipped us to go through it. And there is a time for mourning, but that mourning should not last for years. Maybe not even for months. There's a time for mourning. It doesn't mean we won't miss the person. It doesn't mean 15 years later we won't still be, have a part of our heart broken because we miss them. But guys, as Christians, we do not want to fall into the trap of the enemy of becoming in a place of mourning and weeping and moaning and missing out on what God has for us. Amen. And his message here to, Saul, or to Samuel is, look, the time for mourning over Saul is over. It's time for you now to move on and do the good work that is in front of you. And again, we're all going to go through difficulties. We're all going to go through those trials. Some of you may be going through it now. So he's telling them to move on. But how in the world do you move on when you're in a place of mourning? How do you get past it? I'll never forget a lady that I, I talked to 25 years ago. She lost one of her children. And again, devastating, without question, but had done nothing since was in a constant state of depression. I, I basically said to her, you know what, it wasn't one person who died that day, it was two. 
Because you died with them. And here's the point. Guys, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And you know what? While we miss them, we need to stop mourning to the place where it goes on for years and years and years. Our God's greater than that. And again, I'm not downplaying. You're going to miss them. I understand that. I've got family members in heaven. I miss them. And here's, and in, in this case too, Saul's not going to heaven, guys. And he still tells them, don't mourn anymore. Because it will render you ineffective. So how do you stop mourning? Look what it says. How long will you mourn, seeing that I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. In the Bible, oil represents what? Who? Holy the Holy Spirit. How do you get past the stage of mourning? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Pray and cry out to God and say, less of me and more of you. Lord, fill me to overflowing with the Spirit of the living God and help me to get out of this funk and out of this mourning and out of this moaning and to step out in faithful obedience to what you have for me next. Because you know what? Our God can bring victory in the midst of difficulty. Amen? Amen? And so this is the exhortation he's bringing to Samuel. Samuel's mourning, but he's telling him it's time to stop mourning And it's time for you to move on. There's more ministry to be done. Be filled with the Holy Spirit and move on. He says there, fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. God's work is going to continue through his chosen vessel. God is never going to allow the sinfulness of a man to keep his work from being done. Saul has blown it. God's work is still going to take place. He's going to choose another vessel. Guys, don't you want to be one of the vessels he uses? Because he's going to get his work done with you or without you. And aren't you glad it's not dependent on any of us to make sure God's will is done? Praise God for that. But at the same time, We need to be obedient because I want to be a tool in the hand of my master. And I want to stand before him one day and hear those seven words we all long for. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. I don't want to live a life, again, just floating along and having no impact on eternity. God's put on my heart for a while to look back, to kind of live my life in reverse. Imagine being in heaven one day and looking back on my life and what would have mattered. What is it I can do that will impact eternity? Let's focus on that. And so this is the heart of our our Father, our Heavenly Father, as He says, look, I've provided myself a king. The king they raised up didn't work out. I'm going to give them a king. And the king I'm going to give them is not going to be Saul part two. He's going to be nothing like that guy. Now we know David later in life really blows it. A lot of times people struggle. Let's just take a second and address that. People say, well, wait a minute. David later is going to be an adulterer and a murderer. Did you know that? He commits adultery with Bathsheba and he has, has her, basically has her husband put to death so he can get away with having committed adultery and not be found out. And that's as heinous as any sin Saul commits. So why is David a man after God's own heart? And it says in the last chapter, he regretted making Saul king. What's the difference between these two guys? Let me tell you the difference. When David was confronted with his sin, he repented. When Saul was confronted with his sin, he made excuses. Guys, if you want to be a man or a woman after God's own heart, you need to be one who walks after the Lord, and when you sin, because you will, when conviction comes, you repent. And I believe the sign of spiritual maturity is the amount of time from when you sin to when you repent. It gets closer and shorter and shorter the more mature you are in your faith. 
I believe it goes from week, months, weeks, days, hours, seconds, nanoseconds. Amen? Don't some, sometimes the words are out of your mouth and you're repenting. Amen? Yeah. Oh, right? But you know what? That's a sign of, some, of spiritual maturity, that you're growing in your faith. And so David was a man for God's own heart because he repented. And we're going to see tonight the beginning of this young man, the first time his name is mentioned in Scripture. They've alluded to him, but now we're going to be introduced to this young man. So he's going to go, I'm going to find myself a king. You know, Satan wanted Samuel to remain trapped over past tragedies, to, to sit there, to do nothing. But you know what? God wanted him to move forward. God had still more in front of him. You know, I th- when I think of moving forward, I always think of one thing, the Red Sea. Remember, they were backed up to the Red Sea. The enemy's coming against them. They're crying out to the Lord. And all he wanted them to do was turn around and walk. And you know what? He opened up the Red Sea and he delivered them. And God wants us. Some of us are stagnant in our walk. We've been in the same place today we were 10 years ago. You know, we need to be growing in our faith. Christianity is like a grease pole. You're either climbing up or sliding down. And we need to be climbing up and drawing closer to Him. And so He's exhorting Him, look, I'm not done yet. I've got another man, and I'm going to use this man. And it's time for you to go forward. To Jesse the Bethlehemite. Bethlehemite means he's from Bethlehem. Jesse is the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. If you were here, we went through the book of Ruth. Ruth and Boaz, great picture of the kinsman, redeemer, who redeemed someone. Again, a picture of our Savior. And, and Ruth, as we know, was a woman who was from outside. Her husband had died. She gets redeemed. And it's through her line that Jesus will come. But it's also, she is also the great-grandmother of David. So Jesse is from Bethlehem. And the reason that Jesus was born in Bethlehem is because Jesse is from Bethlehem. Because Ruth and Boaz and Jesse and David, and Bethlehem would later be called the city of David, and the Messiah is called the son of David because he's of the line of David. Jesus was born in Bethlehem because that's where those in his lineage were from. Remember they said, you know, everybody was called together for the tax. They had to go back to the city. Again, it was, it was prophesied hundreds of years beforehand. You can't do that unless you're God, where he would be born that he would be born in Bethlehem. And where was he born in Bethlehem? Bethlehem means the house of bread, and Jesus is the bread of life, the Bible rocks. Amen? you got to love the word of God. So, Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I provided myself a king. Now, the word king, again, not the king provided by man, but this time, the king that God would raise up. If Samuel had continued to mourn, he would have missed out on a great opportunity to be used by God. Verse 2. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. Now this is amazing to me because at the end of the last chapter, he was rebuking Saul hard right to his face. Wasn't he? Saul, you're done. You're done. Man. You, know, you disobeyed God. Sorry, kingdom's ripped from you. Come back with me and you know, stand before the people that I might repent before the people. No, you're done. That's it. And bring Agag out here while you're at it. And then he cut him into small pieces, right? And now he's afraid of him. What happened? I believe that while he was in mourning, while he was in mourning, he got to a place where he was not walking with God the way that he had before. You know, we get to a place where we're mourning over the things around us and we can get our eyes off of God. People get depressed when they mourn. 
And again, he was mourning, I believe, for the right reason, because he would fall away from the Lord, and that's a good thing. But if we mourn too long, we'll get our eyes off of God, and we'll put them on our circumstances. And you know what? We can become fearful. You know why we're afraid? Because we forget how, God, how great God is. You know, your enemies are only great if your God is small. And our God is great, so there are no enemies great. He's a great and awesome God. We have nothing to fear. He has not given us a spirit of fear. And so we don't have to fear anything, be afraid of anything. And sadly, we see that he becomes fearful. This is Samuel, God's man. Now, at the same time, I will say this. If anybody could blow a head gasket and kill God's prophet, it'd be Saul, because he was the same guy that wanted to kill his own son. So this guy didn't have any limit to who he would kill. He'd kill anybody. I'll kill his own son because, why? Well, you ate honey. You weren't supposed to do that. Even though you didn't know, I'm going to kill you. And the people rescued his own son from him. So the prophet of Israel was not beyond being killed by Saul either. So that's a fact. But at the same time, this is not the same Saul. Again, where did the boldness go? We need to be careful. It doesn't take long to take our eyes off of God before we become fearful. And we need to not be fearful. We don't have anything to fear, you guys. The worst thing the world can do to us is the best thing that can happen to us. Amen? Shoot me dead, I'm in the presence of Almighty God, can't threaten me with heaven. Amen? So bring it on. Now, it says there, how can I go? He'll kill me. But the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Now understand this, Bethlehem was not on Samuel's normal, normal circuit. He had four cities he went to on a circuit. And Bethlehem was not one of them. So him going to Bethlehem would have raised suspicion among the people. Why is he going there? He never goes there. He never went there before. So he said, bring with you an animal to make sacrifice. Now this is not so he has an excuse for going because he's actually going to use the sacrifice once he gets there. God's going to use it to draw out the people to come together so he has an opportunity to anoint the man who would be king. But at the same time, he's going to have a fellowship offering that will bring the people together. In the midst of our confusion and concerns, our God always has a perfect plan in place if we will just heed His voice and obey. Okay, you're afraid? Let me tell you what to do. Go down there and make sacrifice. You know what? You're afraid? Come to the place of remembering the cross of Calvary. Amen? He was afraid? Go make sacrifice. You're afraid? You know what? Good time to... Take the Lord's Supper. Good time to sit and remember the cross and all that He's done for you and that you're forgiven. You have nothing to be afraid of. Your God has paid the price in full. He's a great and an awesome God. And then He says, Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one I name to you. You know, God often calls us to take the first step before he shows us the second one. You know, we want the next 150 steps laid out with a map and a provision along the way. That's what we want, right? right? But God says, just, I want you to, okay. And then you get there, and then the next step opens up. And you know what? That's the, what he's telling. Look, you go, and you ask for Jesse, and then I'll show you what to do. I'm not giving you any more details than that. Take the heifer with you. Trust me. I'll protect you. And when you get there, just ask for Jesse. Find him and his family, and then I'll show you what to do. And so God doesn't always give us the entire plan. He tells us to trust Him. Guys, if He gave us the entire plan, it wouldn't require any faith. But because He wants us to step out in faith, He doesn't always give us the entire plan. Again, the first king was anointed for the people. He was that, remember He's going to tell them, I'll tell you who to anoint this time. The first king was the king out of central casting. He was the best looking man on the planet. That's what the text says. 
He was head and shoulders above everybody else. He was this good looking guy. This time, it's not going to be the man's king. It's going to be God's king. And we're going to see a difference. And there's a reason the Lord's going to tell him who to anoint. Because even Samuel would have missed it. And so too for us. If we look at things from our physical eyes, it's very easy for us to choose something contrary to God's will. It's very easy for us to look at the physical circumstances and make a choice using logic when sometimes we need to use a choice not using faith. Amen. Lord, whatever you say. I know it doesn't make sense for me to quit my job, but Lord, if that's what you want me to do, I will. Lord, I know it doesn't make any sense for me to move to this city instead of this one because the housing's more... But Lord, if that's what you want, that's what I'll do. And you know what? Lord wants us to be people not just using our reason, but people that step out in faith. The people's choice had failed. Now we're going to see God's choice. And we're going to see God's ways are far different because this guy is going to be nothing like Saul. He's going to be a man after God's own heart. It says in 1 Samuel 13, The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. Not a man who looks good, but a man who loves God. Verse 4, so Samuel did what the Lord said. If you underline stuff, that's underlined in my Bible. So Samuel did what the Lord said. Here's the key to being used by God. Do what the Lord says. I mean, this is not rocket science. Bible says, okay, I'll do it, right? But often we want to argue and debate and, well, I don't really think it says that. Well, in the original language, the backwards, you know, if you turn it backwards, you put on an album and Speed it up, it says something different, right? I mean, we try, instead of just read the Bible. You've heard me say this before, we don't need Bible codes, we just need to read the one we got in our hand, amen? amen. Well, if you take every eighth letter and you give it a value to the pi squared r, then <laughs> stop! What does it say in plain English? When you get that figured out, then you can start worrying about, you know, Bible codes, amen? The Word of God's clear, let's just obey it. And so he tells him, go, and he, and he went, we need to see more of that, amen? amen? Lord, when you say go, just I want to go. I want to obey. I'll tell you two great words. Yes, Lord. Those are great words. We ought to be using them every day, amen? Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Let's start our day that way. Let's spend our day that way. Let's end our day, day that way. To obey is better than sacrifice. He's not looking for a great man. He's just looking for an available man, an available woman. He'll say, here I am, Lord, use me. And Samuel did what the Lord said. I can think of no greater thing to be said of anybody. He did what the Lord said. And went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming. Now I find this interesting because he didn't normally go to Bethlehem. And up walks the prophet of God. And when he walks up, they see him coming and they go, I... Now, they were trembling. Now... Here's the thing, guys. When Jesus comes back, it'll be a time of great rejoicing for those who know Him, but a time of great trembling for those who don't. And the sign of trembling when the prophet comes walking up is a sign of someone who's not walking with God. Amen? I mean, if, you, if the prophet comes walking up and you're not walking with God, that's the last person you want to see. Have you ever noticed that some of your friends just stop talking to you for a while, they disappear off the face of the earth, and you find out later why? I had one friend, he would be my best friend in the world and then disappear for six months. And I'd finally call him, okay, how long have you been dating the unbeliever? Well, where'd you meet her? You know what I mean? Why? Because here's the point. When you're hanging out with believers, you're going to have your halogen light put on your sin, amen? 
They're going to love you enough. And when Samuel comes walking up, they're like, oh. And the last thing we heard about Samuel prior to this, he was hacking up Agag with a sword, right? And now he comes walking up to Bethlehem. Didn't he just hack some people up? Oh, man, have you done anything wrong? I don't have you. I don't know. I, you know, I, right? Here, comes, here he comes. Do you come in peace or should we run? Right? And you've got to remember, at this point, Samuel is an old man. But often the fear of God follows the man of God. The man of God comes in, the fear of God follows it. Elders of Bethlehem knew that God spoke through Samuel, and they were concerned that maybe they were in trouble. Remember, this is a time when everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes. So this is a time when they're not walking with God, and this guilt has produced fear. Guys, we don't need to be afraid of God. I'm not afraid of Him, are you? Now, I have a godly fear. That's an awe and a reverence for Him, amen? But at the same time, I love Him. I'm not afraid of my dad, Amen? I can't wait to see him face to face. So it says there in verse, do you, did you come, do you come peaceably? Verse 5, and he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Now this is one of the reasons he came. He didn't give them all the details. And you know what? There's a reason for it. Because he's about to anoint the next king of Israel, but it will not be made plain to all of Israel for many, many years. This first anointing is going to be a private one. It's going to be just before David and his family. And he's going to be anointed two more times. And each time, it's going to be before a larger group. So at this point, this is really between Jesse and his boys and the prophet that he's going to be anointed. Now it says this. Then he consecrated. So he says, Peacefully I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. The word sanctify there means to set apart for holy use. Also could be consecrate, depending on the translation you have. And so we're to prepare, they were to propel themselves for sacrifice. How did they do that? They would change their clothes. They would wash their bodies in pure water. They prepare their minds with meditation and reflection and prayer. And today it's kind of like what we should be doing before we take the Lord's Supper. It should be a time where we stop before God. We look back to the cross. We look within our own hearts and examine our hearts before Him. We look forward to the day we'll be with Him in heaven. He's saying, prepare your heart before you come. Sanctify, set yourselves apart in preparation to coming to the sacrifice. And then it says, Then He consecrated, verse 5, Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So He set them apart by instructing and praying with them. So Samuel pulls aside Jesse and his sons. He prays with them prior to the sacrifice. He prays over them in preparation for what God was about to do that they didn't even understand was about to happen. Verse 6. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely this is the Lord's anointed is before. It says, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. He says this out loud exclamation point. Now, What is he looking at? The outward appearance. He's making the same mistake the people made with Saul. Now, Eliab's name, it means that he is, my God is father. And we we know that he was tall. He was good looking. He sounds just like the king they had. But God was not looking for Saul part two. He was looking for his man. A man after his own heart. And while he looked at Eliab, he looked good from the outward appearance. Oh, this is the guy. And we often make snap judgments about people really quickly. We need to be careful not to do that. The Bible says, lay hands on no man quickly. 
I will openly confess to you, I've met people before, without saying a word to anybody, I've thought in my mind, ooh, that guy could, oh man, God's going to use that guy here. Boy, that guy, you know, and then I find out two months later, not so much. You know, I find out two months later, oh, he's actually living with his girlfriend, and he's still married to his wife, and he just got caught for selling drugs. Oh, that was wrong. You know what I mean? And here's the point. That's why we lay hands on no man quickly. Amen? Amen. We don't do that. We want to wait and watch and see and know that their walk is real. And so quickly, he sees this guy, and he goes, oh, that's him. And he says it out loud. He did. Now, is he waiting to hear from the Lord? What's the answer? He didn't wait for God to even say anything. This is him. This is the guy. This is the Lord's anointed. No, you're pulling a Israel. You wanted Saul. And now you're doing the same thing. Don't judge men based on physical stature when we need to be judging them based on inward character. And inward character cannot be recognized at a glance. We need the, we need the power of the Holy Spirit to help us recognize it. So surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, if you, don't, if you underline verses in your Bible, underline this entire verse. Do not look at his appearance or his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Often quoted verse, do not look at his outward appearance. It doesn't matter how good he looks, God has refused him. Men of God don't always respond as they should at first glance. Spiritual maturity is, re- is revealed in a willingness to hear the voice of God and respond to his direction. Instead of speaking, wait and pray. Seek the Lord and confirm this is from God. In any relationship, you're praying about going into business with somebody. The guy looks pretty good from the outside. He seems to have it all going on. He seems like a pretty good businessman. Well, first of all, if you're a believer, he needs to be a believer. And you need to know that his walk with God is where it needs to be. Stop and pray. And the same thing is true here. And even the prophet Samuel is falling into the trap of speaking before he hears from God. And God, the Lord says to him, don't look at his appearance because I have refused him. doesn't matter how good he looks to you. It's not my choice. It's not my will. And we're guilty of basing things on the physical today. We can't pick on Samuel too much because we do it. Then it says, For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Man is indeed impressed with outward appearance. Aren't we? That was weak, aren't we? If we weren't, there would be no health clubs. Right? There'd be no hair dye. Jewelry stores. Right? I mean, we're impressed. We look at trim and muscular physiques and fashionable clothing. There'd be no malls. Uh, flashy jewelry. Handsome or pretty face. You know, even, I'll tell you another thing we can be impressed by on the outward appearance is outward religious garments. People see it go, oh, that guy must be religious. Got a big black robe, goes all the way down to the ground and a three-foot cross. Ooh, must love God. <laughs> and I'm not saying he doesn't. Here's what I'm saying. Man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. Amen? Amen. And he's telling them, don't get caught up in the fact that they're good looking or even charismatic. Or You know what? Man is impressed with all that stuff. God is not. It doesn't impress him one bit how much you can bench press. He really doesn't care. It doesn't impress him how nice your wardrobe is. You know, or what your waistline is. Some of us are, amen, praise God for that. But you know what I mean? He's not concerned with any of that. It means nothing to him. And they're the things that we focus so much on. 
Imagine if we truly believe this verse. We'd spend less time at the gym, less time at the mall, less time at the beauty salon, and more time in the Word, more time in fellowship, and more time in prayer. Amen? Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't, you know, take a shower. <laughs> Body stinketh. Amen? Someone once asked Pastor Chuck Smith if, if women should wear makeup or not. He said, hey, man, if the bar needs painting, paint it, right? <laughs> And the truth is, it's okay, but we don't want to be, you know, we don't want to be so focused on our looks and so focused on our appearance that we miss out on doing God's will. So, we miss out on ministry and ministering to others when we're focused on the physical. God's so much, so far more concerned with inward calling and character and humility than a pretty smile or an outward appearance of great wealth or success. And again, we can look good before men. It means absolutely nothing to God. Please know God is not impressed with our outward appearance. And so too, we must each learn to not be so quick to judge others based on their outward appearance. Remember, it is outward appearance that had Israel crying out for King Saul, and that didn't work out too well. And Lord, help us not to fall into the same trap. My prayer is, Lord, help us to see others as you do. Help us to love people unconditionally. Who cares what they look? It's irrelevant. Who cares how long or short their hair is or you know, what color? Who cares? Jesus loves them. He died on the cross for them. We need to love them too. Amen? Amen? So let's pray for them and let's have that same heart. So a tale of two kings, one of physical stature, one of inward character. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. Number two, one of, of shameless self-promotion, one of quiet and humble submission. Look at verse 8. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Now, this time he's starting to listen to the Lord. And the Lord's telling him, and he says, he repeats exactly what the Lord says. Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Abinadab, my father is willing, is what his name means. Samuel's not looking at his outward appearance anymore. He's just listening to what God says, and he's repeating it. That's a good thing to do, by the way. Verse 9. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Verse 10. Then Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Now, he could have started to question or doubt because there were only seven boys there. And God had already told him, You're going to anoint one of the sons of Jesse. They've already all walked by. He could have said, Well, now wait a minute. Have them come back by through. Or, or, Lord, are you sure? Did you, did I, did you miss it? Um, that was all of them, Lord. Did you know? That? I mean, you know, right? He could have done that. But instead, showing that now he has faith, he says something else. And this is, again, showing that he's starting to grasp a hold of the fact that it's not how he sees, but what he listens to. And I want to say this. In 1 Peter, this is an exa- a great example of the type of heart we ought to have. Because Samuel was not making a choice. He's only identifying God's word. But I love in 1 Peter 3, this is describing a godly wife, but I believe it could describe a godly person. And I believe this describes David, who we're going to see in the next verse. It says this, Do not let your adornment merely be outward, arranging the hair and wearing gold or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be a hidden person, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. 1 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4. You know, it's not the outward adorning, it's the inward heart. 
And he's now going to call for this young man who, let's take a look at verse 11. And Samuel said to Jesse, are, are all the young men here? Now, I love this because to me, this is a, a, a statement of faith. Because God said it's going to be one of his sons. They've all walked by. It's none of them. There must be more. And so he says, are they all here? Look what it says. Then he said, there remains yet the youngest. And there he is keeping the sheep. Now, this shows us what Jesse thinks of his own son. He didn't even invite him. He just left him out watching the sheep. Oh, he's going to anoint one of them. Well, it's not going to be him. You just stay out there and take care of the sheep. Now, it's interesting, depending on commentators and, and historians, David is between the ages of 10 and 15. He is a young man, a very young man. So think about that. I'm a 12-year-old. I'm not bringing him in here. I mean, you know, Eliab, yoked. And then the, he's a kid. You got to watching the sheep, right? Oh, yeah, we got one more. You got to watching the sheep somewhere, right? And so while Saul was a shameless self-promoter taking credit away even from his own son Jonathan when he won victory. David was so insignificant in even his own father's eyes that he was off keeping the sheep and not even invited. You got one guy, it's all about me, and David doesn't even know he's in the program. He's just out doing what he's supposed to do. He's got no idea he's going to ever do anything but keep sheep his entire life. This is what I'm doing, I'm going to do it and honor God in it. Guys, we don't know what's next. Let's be faithful where we are. God may have more, but He wants you to be faithful right where you're at today. You know what I love, though? When you're looking for a shepherd, a good place to find him is among the sheep. Amen? Amen. And here he is out there watching the sheep, has no idea that he's in King Training 101. (laughs) But God was preparing him as he watched the sheep. It was in this seemingly insignificant task of shepherding sheep that God was using to prepare David to be king, watching over and laying down his life for the flock. We know that David killed both a lion and a bear and probably other animals when they came in. And remember, probably 12, 13, a young man went out and fought a bear. Now, I don't know if there's any guys in here that would be fighting any bears. I'd be running, you know, find a tree, get away, you know what I mean? But here's David fighting a bear and fought a lion. And what was he learning? He was learning to lay down his life for the sheep. He was learning to truly have the heart of a shepherd. You know what else happened out there with the sheep? He had a lot of solitary time with the Lord. It was out there that he wrote many of the Psalms. It was out there that he would sit for hours and just worship the Lord. And you know what? That was all preparation to be a godly king. Before he could be a godly king, he needed to be a godly man. And how would he become a godly man? Spending time with Almighty God. There's no other way to be a godly man, by the way, than to spend time with God. No other way to be a godly woman than to spend time with God. So he had time of worship, he had time of his heart be prepared, and all the while, as he was faithful in this menial task, he had no idea that it was preparing him for something greater. He's the youngest of eight sons. He's the least significant in his father's eyes. But you know what? He's God's man. He's God's man. 1 Corinthians says this in 1 Corinthians 1.26, Not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. The Bible tells us that God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. So it says here, There he is among the sheep, and Samuel said to Jesse, Send him, bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. 
He's gotten to the point now where he understands, okay, God said all the sons, I've seen seven, I'm not going anywhere. Bring that young man in here. And they bring him in. So a tale of two kings, one of physical stature, one of inward character, one of, of shameless self-promotion, and one of quiet and humble submission, out there watching the sheep all by himself. Number three, one troubled by a distressing spirit, one filled with the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 12. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. Now, ruddy means, it can mean one of two things. It can mean either that he had red hair or that he had a clear and tanned complexion. I know those are two different things. Uh, A clear and tanned complexion, he's out there in the sun all day. That's possible. He also may have had red hair, but he was ruddy. That word ruddy has several potential meanings. He had bright eyes, bright, clear, and sparkling eyes. Most of the commentators said that bright eyes was usually referring to someone with bright blue eyes. So here comes this young guy, you made me, red, red flowing hair, bright blue eyes, tan skin, and it says there, good looking, with bright eyes and good looking, of pleasant countenance, delightful to behold. Now, man looks on the outward appearance and God looks on the heart. But understand this, he was nowhere near as good looking as Saul. Because remember, Saul was the best looking man on the planet. That's what it said. Of all the children of Israel, he was it. But you know what? This young man just comes bouncing in. Hey, I'm out there watching the sheep. Whatever you want me to do. You want me to come, Dad? I'm coming. He comes walking in, has no idea what's in front of him. David believed, again, by most Jewish commentators, to be between about the age of 10 and 15. Most people who saw him would probably say, there's a nice-looking looking young boy. And in he walks. Again, outwardly, he in no way compared to Saul. Let's just assume he's 14 or 15. That's the high end. If he's 14 or 15 years old, he's a little guy, he's you know, kind of tanned, he's got a slingshot in his hand, and you know what I mean? Comes walking in, Saul's rocking around with all his armor on, carrying his sword, head and shoulders above everybody else. If you put those two guys next to each other and said, okay, which one do you want for king? Be really, if they had a vote, I don't think David would get it. His own dad wouldn't have voted for him. He didn't even call him in out of the field, right? And here, so what happens instead, though, is man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. And if you looked at the hearts of those two men, it'd be a landslide in the opposite direction. Because the heart of Saul was wicked. And the heart of David was for God. He was God's man. And we need to, again, be more concerned with where our heart is than how good we look before men. And again, I love this picture of David because it's an, it should be an encouragement to all of us. Here's this young guy that God's going to use in a mighty way. He wants to do the same with us. And the Lord said, Arise and anoint him. This is the one. Who called him? God did. Who, who pointed him out? God did. He wasn't voted on by men. He was anointed by God. Amen? Amen. We don't vote on who God's man is. God raises up his man and we recognize it, right? You know, we ordain a pastor in, in this church or any other church I've been a part of. It's always because God's already recognized that person. And when you ordain him, everybody goes, well, duh. I thought already that, well, duh. Evidently, because here's the point: we start living that way because God has His hand upon that person. They just start living sold out for God, and everybody recognizes it. So men don't ordain men, and again, if they had, you probably would have been the last choice. Of all of Jesse's sons, they would have picked David last. They didn't even bring him in, but he was God's man. You know what? David's stature wasn't much, but his heart for God was great, and that's what God is looking for a heart 
to serve him. Then it says, verse 13, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. Now, look at this. He gets both a physical anointing and a spiritual anointing all at one time. He comes forward. He pours the oil out on his head. It's running down on this young man. This young boy standing there. The oil is poured out upon him. Oil again, a picture of the Holy Spirit. This was a private anointing because the only people that were there was his family. His family standing there, the prophet of God is pouring out oil upon his head. And at the same time, more significantly than the outward pouring of oil was the inward anointing of the Holy Spirit. Because it says there, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. I love that the word there is upon. Because Jesus said, go and wait, right? I'm leaving, I'm going to send you another helper. Go and the Holy Spirit, go and wait and the Holy Spirit shall come upon you. And the Holy Spirit upon them in Acts chapter 2 is the same way the Holy Spirit came upon David right here. Now understand in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was given for a specific task. And the Holy Spirit could be removed, as we're going to see in the next verse. But for you and I, here's the good news. When Jesus went away, he sent another helper who never leaves. When the Holy Spirit came in us, he will always be in us. Amen? Aren't you glad? He will never leave. He's not going to run away. Now, it does happen in the Old Testament. David would even cry out, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Because he knew that rebellion would be the removal of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit has come upon this young man. He's been anointed. This is God's man. I find this interesting. He's anointed here. He will not become king for many, many years. He's the anointed king, but he won't be the enthroned king for a long time. You know, this reminds me of a picture for me, Old Testament picture of a New Testament truth. Jesus is the anointed king, but right now he's in heaven. And the Bible tells us that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He is the prince of this world right now, only because God's allowing it though. You understand that? Jesus is coming back and he's going to rule and reign and we're going to see what it's going to be like for a thousand years with him in charge and I can't wait. Amen? Amen. Can you imagine what Santa Cruz is going to be like during the millennium? You ever thought about that? That's going to be, I'm going to go downtown. I'm just going to go downtown. I just want to see what it's going to look like with the Lord in charge. It's going to be sweet, you know? Now, so we see here that he's been anointed. God's, you know, poured out his spirit upon him. And it says, So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Now I want to say this quickly, then we'll move to verse 14. Three times he's anointed. First time in front of his family. Get to 2 Samuel chapter 2. Many years in advance, he'll be anointed before the tribe of Judah. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 5, he'll be anointed in front of all of Israel. You know, while anointed, timing for ministry was going to unfold in God's perfect timing, and we can't rush it. You know what? God may have already put a calling and a burden upon your life, but you need to wait upon the Lord. He may put a burden on your heart and a calling on your heart, and it may be evident to your, your wife and your parents right now, and nobody else sees it yet. You know, this is where David's at. Only his family knows. Nobody else. But you know what? In time, as he continues to walk with the Lord, it's going to be evident first to the whole tribe and then eventually to all of Israel. This is God's man. And so we need to just be faithful. And same for the women as well. God's woman. God's got plans for our lives. And we need to wait upon Him. And when there's a calling upon our life, it doesn't mean it's going to happen tomorrow. We need to learn to be 
patient. Again, our anointing is, will be recognized by others in God's timing. Verse 14. So the Spirit of the Lord came upon David, but the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Spirit of the Lord came upon David, Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Now look what it says there. And a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. So Jesus, it says in the New Testament, left another helper. And in this case, the same helper that is in us today came upon David. And at the same time, Saul, anything good left in Saul is now gone completely. And he leaves a distressing spirit. Now, the interpretation of that is hard for people to understand. Two most prevalent possibilities. Because is the Lord left a distressing spirit. Now, that means that the Lord actually distressed him. Or he allowed an evil spirit to distress him, which is what I believe. And I'll tell you why I do as we get to the end of the text. So the Lord allows this distressing spirit to come upon him. And this is true of any type of demonic attack. It's only possible when God allows it. Josephus, a first century Jewish historian, describes Saul's behavior as one who acted like he was demon-possessed, like he had lost his mind. He was full of, of despair, suspicion. Uh, you know, suspicion and rage. He was in a constant feeling of being choked. And whatever the symptoms, it became obvious to those around him that something was wrong with him. We're going to see that in the next verse. So, a tale of two kings, one troubled by distressing spirit, one filled with the Holy Spirit. Next, one who those closest to him knew that he was troubled, or one from far off distance, men could see that God's hand was upon him. Look at verse 15. And Saul's servant said to him, Surely a distressing spirit from God has come upon you. So just as the Holy Spirit is evident in the life of a believer, so true an evil spirit is evident in the life of an unbeliever. Those closest to him recognize something's wrong with you, dude. They're, dude Saul, you're a mess, okay? Something wrong with you. We've got to figure out what's up with you. I'm going to figure out how to fix this because something's up, man, right? They're having an intervention with Saul, okay? They're coming to talk to him. Dude, something's wrong with you, all right? And they didn't think it was a physical element. They didn't call the doctor. And they, they saw it as a spiritual problem. They're going to call a godly man. They don't call for the doctor. They call for a godly man. And when a spiritual problem comes up, that's who they should call. Look at verse 16. Let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful player of the heart. They call for a worship leader. I'm not kidding. Here's what happens. He said, you know what, dude, you're a mess. Let's call for a worship leader. We need to get us a worship leader in here. The word harp there is also the word lyre, which is more like a guitar. So let's call for a guitar player to come in and play some worship because, man, you're a mess right now, and you need to be in the presence of the Lord. You need to have a time of worship to get your eyes back on God. And it shall be, he will play in his hand when your distressing spirit from God is upon you, and you shall be well. You know, if we play the music, then the distressing spirit will leave. This is why, again, I believe it's an evil spirit, because the Holy Spirit wouldn't leave, or a spirit sent by God wouldn't leave, but the enemy sure would, because he hates worship. Verse 17, So Saul said to his servants, Provide me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. You know, often our greatest opportunity for ministry is in the time of people's greatest trials. When does this guy call? Okay, yeah, bring the godly guy now. My life is a total disaster. I think I'm choking. I've lost my mind. Bring a godly guy. Right? And sometimes we look at people around us, and when everything's falling apart, and you've been witnessing to them for five years, and I never wanted to hear it before, they come, but could you pray for me? Yes, I'll be happy to pray for you. But look for those opportunities, amen? Their trials are opportunities for us to proclaim the gospel to them. Time most desperate is often the time they will most will listen the most. Verse 18. This is David's resume. Look at his resume. 
Then one of the servants answered and said, Look, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is skillful on playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a handsome person, and the Lord is with him. What a resume for a teenager. Amen? Man, I'd like to have a youth group full of these kids, right? The Lord, it says there, he was skillful in playing. So he was a gifted worship leader. He was a mighty man of valor, a man of war. Again, he had slayed a lion and a bear. May have been more battles we don't know about. He was prudent in speech. He was able to communicate clearly, clearly to carry himself. He was a handsome person in both form and appearance. And the Lord was with him. This is the key to his entire resume. The Bible says, without him we can do nothing, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And he says, you know what? God's hand is upon this young man. He's been filled with the Holy Spirit. It's evident even to these servants of Saul from a distance, they can see that guy way over there. There's something special about him. God's got his hand on him. That's the guy we need to come and relieve this distressing spirit from our king. You know what? May we live lives that people can see Jesus in us from 10 miles away. Amen? Amen. May they recognize it in the way we live. Last point, a tale of two kings. One whose rebellion left him troubled and distressed, and one whose praise and worship left others encouraged and refreshed. Look at verse 19. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. Again, where is David? He's back with the sheep. Now think about this. He got anointed king. Do you th- now that's humility, isn't it? When you say to your brother, now look, I'm the king. You're not. I'm king. Remember, king, who got anointed? Uh, who got anointed? You were there. Were you anointed? No, I don't think so. He anointed me, not you. Get out and watch the sheep. I'm staying here, right? I mean, that could have been the attitude. But what did he do? He went right back to the sheep. Man, I love that. Because it shows a heart of humility. This is why he's God's man. He's not looking to be served, but to serve. He's not looking to be lifted up, but to lift up the name of the Lord. He's not looking to have others take his place, but to be faithful and obedient to the most menial of tasks if it will bring glory and honor to his name. Man, I love his heart. He didn't demand anything. He just kept serving. Verse 20, And Jesse took a donkey and loaded it with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them by his son David to Saul. So David came to Saul and stood before him and said, Dude, you're not the king anymore. I was anointed, so just get out. Now that's not what he said. But couldn't he have said that? Isn't he not the king? Holy Spirit's upon him. You don't have the spirit. You used to have the spirit. You don't have it anymore, right? We all know. You got a distressing spirit. You're bad. That's because you're rebelling. You miss God. He ripped the kingdom from you. Said he's going to give it to one far better. Here I am. Get off my throne. Now he could have done all of that. But David didn't do any of that. What did David do? Look at this blows me away. David stood before him and he loved him greatly and he became his armor bearer. Wow. He looked at Saul, who was in rebellion against God, and he loved him. And he loved him enough to say, I want to be your armor bearer. Who is an armor bearer? He is the guy that went out into battle before him and carried all of his weaponry and basically was willing to lay down his life for the one whose armor he was carrying. David's the rightful king, but he's acting like the great servant. But that's why he is the rightful king, because he has the heart of a servant. Boy, what an example for us. 
When you look at those who you despise and you think, oh man, that guy, what a disaster, and he's rebelling against God. Imagine if we went and we loved them and we laid down our lives for them instead of being critical of them. That's exactly what David does here. God has placed Saul in his life and David is going to minister to him. Verse 22, then David... Then Saul sent, Jess, sent to Jesse, saying, Please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. The shepherd boy found favor in the sight of the king. Much like Daniel and Joseph, God had a plan, and he would bring favor to those he's going to use. Last verse. And so it was, whenever the Spirit from God was upon Saul, that David would take a harp and play it with his hand. Then Saul would become refreshed and well, and his distressing spirit would depart from him. Proof to me again this was an evil spirit because every time worship was played, the distressing spirit would leave. Josephus says not only did he play, but he sang. So David would sing. He might have been singing Psalm 23. You know? He's singing praise songs and hymns to a king who's got a distressing spirit, and when he sings, the distressing spirit leaves. Now, many believe, myself included, that Satan is allergic to praise, and one of the reasons is that he was actually the worship leader in heaven before he was cast out. So he hates worship. Hates it. That's why we ought to worship more. Amen. I mean, God's worthy to be worshipped, to be praised, and if it bothers Satan, that's just fine with me. Yeah. And you know what? He loves this man. He lays down his life for this man. And now we see him sitting there and singing praise songs. What an example of somebody submitted completely to the Lord. You know what he's saying? I'm submitting to to the authority placed there by the Lord. And you know what? I'm not going to overcome evil with evil. I'm going to overcome evil with good. And you know what? I'm going to come and I'm going to refresh him by coming to him. I pray that the people that are far away from God would be refreshed when we walk into the room because we're so in love with Jesus and we just pour out his love on them. Amen? Imagine what would happen. So in closing, a tale of two kings, one of physical stature, one of inward character, one of of shameless self-promotion, one of quiet and humble submission. One troubled by a distressing spirit, one filled with the Holy Spirit. One who's closest, those who closest to him knew he was in trouble, knew he was troubled. One who even from a distance meant could see that God's hand was upon him. One whose rebellion had left him troubled and distressed. And one whose praise and worship left others encouraged and refreshed. May we walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. May we refresh others. May people see Jesus upon us. May it be evident that we're filled to overflowing with the Holy Spirit. May we walk in quiet and humble submission. And may we be far more concerned about being men and women of inward character than at being outwardly promoted by man. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you for the examples in your word, Lord. And I pray you'd help us, Lord, to live lives sold out and set apart unto you. Father, I pray that we wouldn't see David's example as an unattainable one. Because, Lord, the same Holy Spirit that was upon him can be upon us, we will just ask. Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. Fill us to overflowing. Lord, that we would live in such a contrary way that people's eyes would be wide open to who you are. Father, we thank you and praise you, Lord. We do pray for the souls we may have in our lives. The boss that's overbearing, a family member that's difficult, And Lord, may we respond the way David did. May we love them unconditionally. Lord, may we go to them and and bring the joy of the Lord to them, not condemnation upon them. 
We love you, Lord, and we praise you. You're a great and awesome God. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.